In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18, really down through about verse 25, Paul emphasizes that God chose preaching as the mechanism to get the gospel out into the world. And there are various opportunities and ways for us to benefit from the preaching of God's word. One is on an occasion like this morning as we open up the word of God and study together so that we might be benefited from the preaching of the word. But then there are other opportunities that the elders set aside for the congregation here to be built up and to be strengthened. And one such occasion is coming up for us here at Lehman Avenue, March 11th, 12th and 13th. There'll be a gospel meeting with Brother Melvin Ote. And I just want to take this time to encourage us all as best we can to not only be present, but to invite others to be present for those events as well, for those lessons as well. Neil and I know Melvin very well. He's a law professor at Falk. University in Montgomery, Alabama, always does a great job preaching the word, and you will be greatly blessed. It's a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday meeting, and so let's do our best to fill the building, to reach out to our friends and loved ones as we do our best to become more balanced believers. One more thing before we start the sermon. I know this will be announced later, but a few people have said to me, what exactly is Pew Packers? And if you have young children tonight or not so young children and you want them to be here, they're welcome to come and sit on the front row at about 545. We'll cover Bible books, apostles names and Bible drills, teaching them facts and memory verses. And it'll be something we'll do here 545 every Sunday evening before worship service to kind of better instill the word of God in our young people and help them to develop a love for the word of God. And maybe us older folks will learn something ourselves along the way. John and Simeon Reno, they're also known as the Reno brothers, are credited with being the first individuals in U.S. history to successfully rob a train. October 6, 1866, they made off with $13,000. They caught a train traveling from Ohio to Mississippi when it was in Jackson County, Indiana, and they pulled off one of the greatest heists at that time known to men in this country. They weren't the first people to rob a train, but what they did was unique in that they were the first people to rob a moving train. Most times the trains were robbed at the freight stations or at the yard, but they caught a train moving and they capitalized on it. Train eventually wised up and then they had armed guards on the trains to watch over the gold, the precious metal and the cash that was often making its way on these trains. But these men were the first to say, you know what, there's something we can do that other people can't. And they became known for what they took. It caught on with other gangs like Cassidy's Wild Bunch and other criminals. But I would submit to you that the Reno brothers are not the most famous thieves that have ever existed. Neither is Jesse James or Bill Mason or even Frank Abagnale. No, the most famous thief the world has ever known is in the most famous book, an influential book that the world has ever known. This man, we don't know his name. We don't know where he's from. In fact, he's a famous thief, but nobody really knows what he stole. He's affectionately known to Bible students as the thief on the cross. That's what we call him. He's mentioned in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John 19, 18 says there were two thieves crucified with Jesus, one on the right, the other on the left. Matthew 27, 38 mentions him and the other robber as well. Mark tells us that initially both thieves accused Jesus of various things, and they joined in with the chief priests and those at the foot of the cross as they railed on him and also cursed his name. Mark 15, 27 through 33. But midway through the execution... One of the thieves had a change of heart. One of them turned and saw Jesus for who he truly was. And he's been stealing the hearts of Bible students ever since. As we read of his penitent heart and we realize that there's changes that all of us can make. There are two common errors that are made when people come to this 
Luke's the only one that mentions this thief on the cross and his penitence in Luke 23, 39 through 43. But there are two common errors that people make when they approach, we might say, this account or this story. The first one is people see the thief on the cross as evidence for faith-only doctrine or what you might call a deathbed confession. Some people come to 23 and they say, I want to be saved just like the thief on the cross. And after all, he was saved in the last moments of his life. And so I can do the same thing. Nothing matters. Life doesn't matter. So long as I verbalize faith in Jesus. We use this account to talk about the fact that baptism is not essential, even though the New Testament is filled with passages like Acts 2 and verse 38 that says, repent and be baptized. In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins or baptism also now saves you first. Or faith separated from works is dead. James 2, 20 and 24. One of the mistakes people make as they approach this text is to say, look at the thief on the cross. But that won't do. The second mistake that people make as they approach this text is only noticing the negative. This camp, in an effort to defend biblical truth, only mentions the thief on the cross as they rebuke others and suggest to them that they can't be saved like this man because of the covenant that he was under, the time and the way in which he died. And they make the same error as those that they hope to rebuke and instruct, forgetting the very reason why Luke has it in his gospel account to begin with. Only seeing the negative, only seeing what we can't learn from the thief instead of what Luke really wants us to learn. Luke has it in his gospel account for a reason. Not to give it as evidence that all a person has to do is make a mouth confession right before death. Neither is he here just to be rebuked as one that wasn't baptized or maybe was for those that are defending the truth on the necessity to be baptized. Luke has him here to say Jesus was born into the world to save the souls of men. And he did it up until his dying day. Many people have said many things about the thief on the cross, but what I want to do this morning is to let the man speak for himself. All of our points this morning will come from Luke 23, 39 through 43, and they'll all be words from the thief. What did he believe? What did he say about his relationship with God? And everything that he said are all things that we need to believe. There are five things we learned from the thief on the cross. Let's begin with our text in Luke 23, beginning with verse 39. And one of the thieves, which were hanged, railed at him and said, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, seeing we are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the just due for our works. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. What did the thief on the cross believe? Number one. He believed that God should be feared. You know, the first thief doesn't ever repent or change so far as we know. And he's just like everybody else at the foot of the cross. He rebukes Jesus and he says things to Jesus like, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. If you're really who you claim to be. Jesus had met these types of temptations before. It's what the devil said in the wilderness. You remember Matthew chapter four. If you be the son of God, change these stones to bread. And Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's what the chief priests did when they would say, give us another sign and then we'll believe. And Jesus said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except that of the prophet Jonah. Jesus would tell them, you behold the sun and the moon and the stars and the skies. But can't you see the son of man in your midst? Matthew 16, one through four. That's the first thief asking for more evidence, rebuking Jesus and saying, prove to me that you are who you claim to be. But not the second man. 
No, the man we know as the thief on the cross responds with this declaration. He did fear God. He asked a question, but it wasn't for information. It was a rhetorical one. Do you not fear God? Seeing we are in the same condemnation and we indeed justly. This was a rhetorical question, not designed to get an answer, but to drive home a point that the other thief should have enough respect and reverence for God to not say the things that he was saying on this occasion. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14 says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Solomon says all of man's duty is to fear God and to keep his commandments. And this is something that the thief got right. He believed that God should be feared. He's a criminal. He's done wrong and he's suffering for those wrongs. But there's one thing he knows. There's a line you don't cross. There's one that you don't disrespect. And he wants his fellow sufferer to realize this great reality. You do need to fear God. It's been rightly noted that the Bible says over 300 times one man is counted. There are 365 times, one for every day, that the Bible says do not fear, do not be afraid. And that's encouraging and that's great news. But do you know that the Bible also says we should be afraid? Most importantly, we should fear God. And sometimes we soften this and we say, well, all that really means is that we should have a reverence and a respect for God. And that's true. But there should also be a fear for who God is. A sort of trembling in his presence because of his reverence and high and holy nature. And that's what the thief is driving at. Think of people in the Bible who are highlighted for this great fact. They really did fear God. In Exodus chapter 1 and verse 17, the Hebrew midwives, they wouldn't offer up the Hebrew boys on the Nile River, the Bible says, because they fear God. Job 1 and verse 1, Job was an upright man who refrained from evil. He was a righteous man who feared God. Proverbs 14 and verse 2 says, the man that is upright in his way is one who fears the Lord. Israel was told, don't ever mock or make fun of those who are handicapped because you are to fear the Lord. Leviticus 19, 14. God says, I want you to fear me. And that's what the thief drives at. You know, we live in a society where many people have become too sophisticated for fear of God, for fear of the Lord. There are all types of phobias. People are afraid of the dark. They're afraid of heights. They're afraid of being in open spaces or in closed spaces. We have a phobia for just about everything in the world. But what about theophobia? Is anybody afraid of who God is? The thief says we should be. As Paul described the world in which he lived, he talked about Jews and Gentiles. And he says they're both under condemnation. And then in Romans 3.18, he says there is no fear of God before their eyes. May that not be true of us. The thief knew that God was to be feared. God was to be reverenced. And he encourages us to do the very same thing. Sometimes people think God's hands are tied. God won't do anything. In the days of Zephaniah and Zephaniah 1 and verse 12, they said about God, he won't do good and he won't do evil. But God never makes empty threats. He will follow through. It's kind of like people that have dogs. You know, if you run a lot, you're going to run into a lot of stray dogs. Neil and I were in Texas on the run once and we almost got ate by some dogs. I was hoping that they liked white meat instead of dark meat on that day. But... (laughs) You know, sometimes people have dogs and they say, oh, he won't bite. And you're wondering, well, why does he have those teeth? You know, if he won't bite, what's the big deal about that? And sometimes people think about God. Oh, there are threats in the Bible. Oh, the Bible says things about judgment. But, you know, God's not going to do anything. But the Bible assures us the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein. They will be burned up. God doesn't make empty threats. The thief is saying to his fellow sufferer, 
Don't you fear God? Don't you realize this is serious business? Don't you realize you can't just approach him in a flippant and irreverent way? And we need the same fear. If we find ourselves in secret sin that nobody else knows about and we think, well, surely I can get away with this. We should say to ourselves, don't you fear God? Jesus says, don't fear those that can destroy the body. But after that, have nothing that they can do, but rather fear the one who's able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Matthew 10, 28. If we're tempting God and putting him to the test and saying, God, if you do this, then I'll do this. We should ask ourselves, don't you fear God? First Corinthians 10, 9 through 10 says the Israelites tempted God and they were destroyed in the wilderness. By serpents. If we find ourselves saying, you know what, I'll give God 90% of the credit, but I'll keep about 10% of the glory for me and for my ego, we should ask ourselves, don't you fear God? Don't you remember what happened to Herod in Acts 12, 20 through 23, when he stole some of God's glory and he was struck by the angel of the Lord and eaten of worms? And if we're delaying our obedience to the gospel and we're saying, you know what, I'll obey God and his gospel when I get good and ready. The thief's question is posed to us, don't you fear God? Don't you know what Jesus said? If you die in your sins, you can't go where I'm going. If you don't believe that I'm he, you will die in those sins. John 8, 24. You see, the thief on the cross was a reverent man, even in his transgression. And he believed that God should be feared. Now, here's number two. The thief on the cross believed his punishment was deserved. Do you not fear God? He says, seeing we are in the same condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we received the due reward for our deeds. He believed that what he was suffering at the hands of the Romans was deserved. By all accounts, it appears that he was a Jewish man and he would have known. Exodus 20 and verse 15, which says, you shall not steal. And he had done that and maybe had done some other crimes as well. And now he is suffering on account of that. And as he suffers, he says, we received the due reward for our deeds, what we have gotten for our punishment. This crucifixion is ours and we deserve it. He doesn't ask to be released. He doesn't cry for injustice. He says, you know what? What we're receiving is exactly what we deserve. The Bible says in Romans chapter 13 that the governing officials are put in power by God. And then Romans 13 and verse 4 says they are God's ministers or servants sent to execute and pronounce vengeance on those that practice evil. And this man is suffering in that regard. And he says, you know what? We deserve it. It's as if Jesus is in the middle. I don't know which side he was on. I like to think he was on the right side. And he talks across Jesus and says to the other thief, we are getting exactly what we deserve for our deeds. He believed his punishment was deserved. You know, there are few people like this man in the world today. Few people can say, you know what? I'm suffering and it's all my fault. I've done the wrong. It's me. That's what he said. When the children of Israel were off in Babylonian captivity and Daniel to God in Daniel chapter nine, verse eight, he said, you know, God, we are in captivity because we have sinned. We've done what's wrong. You have been faithful and righteous, just and true. But we and our fathers, we have produced iniquity and sin and our suffering belongs to us. Ezra nine and verse seven, he stood before the people as they finally made their way back to Israel. They're back in the promised land. And he says, we are here because of your grace and mercy. But to us belongs guilt. And shamefacedness because of our iniquities and our transgressions, they were able to own up to what they had done. They were able to confess we're the guilty sinners. Samuel Little is serving consecutive life sentences in prison for murders that he committed in the 1980s. In 2019, he was interviewed on minute by a Texas Ranger named James Holland, at which time he confessed to over 93 killings that were initially unresolved. 
Of course, investigators initially, they proceeded with caution because serial killers have been known to be master manipulators. Those who want to make a name for themselves, those who want to be popular and have books written about them. But so far, 50 of Little's confessions have checked out. And it's puzzled the investigators. Why confess? Why own up to these things? He's serving the life sentences. They can't be reversed. Nobody knows. But here's what we do know. The thief on the cross was not confessing to the wrong that he had done for any notoriety or even so that Luke would write about him. His confession was genuine and true because he knew what he had done. The first step to liberation from guilt and to having our sins removed is this idea of confession, the acknowledgement of wrong. Proverbs 28 and verse 13 says, he that covers his sins will not prosper, but he that confesses them and forsakes them will find mercy. If we will own up to our wrongdoings and say, I have done the wrong, then we're on the first step to being God's friends. David wasn't a perfect man, but here's what David got right. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then instigated the murder of Uriah, Nathan confronts him in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And then after the parable, he says in verse 7, you are the man. You're the sinner I'm talking about. And do you know what David says next? In 2 Samuel 12, 13, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And you know what he says after that? Nothing. That's it. I have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't say, but Bathsheba was immodest and Uriah wasn't home when he should have been. And he wasn't a good husband. He says, you know what? I've done the wrong thing. And while there may have been other circumstances involved, David owned up to what he had done. And so does the thief. We indeed suffer justly for the deeds that we have done. We've reaped what we have sown, he says to the other thief. And it's nobody's fault but our own. I was listening to a podcast this week. By a name, a man was being interviewed. His name is David Brooks. He's a professor at Yale and a writer for the New York Times. And he talked about the fact that there's been a shift in our country. Before the 1950s, Brooks says that in this country, even people that weren't religious realized that they were broken, that they needed something to help fix them, whether it was religion or some type of mental health. People knew that the answers to life's enigmas were not found within, but from without, that we were not the answers to our problems. But today there's been a shift. Most people don't think they're the problem. The problem is out there and the answers are in here and we flipped it and we've gotten it backwards. But the thief says, would you own up to your wrongs? What if it's not where you grew up? What if it's not the environment? And you say, well, if I wouldn't have grown up in this area, what if it's you? What if it's not your spouse? What if it's not their fault? What if what if it's you? What if it's not your parents fault and they didn't give you this and they didn't do this for you? Can you say like the thief? I've received the due reward for my deeds. The Bible says if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive. First John one and verse nine and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't this where Saul, the king of Israel, failed in first Samuel 15? Samuel confronts him. He's not performed the sacrifices as he should. Samuel confronts him and he starts to point and look around and say, well, the people saved the best of the things from the Amalekites. And they brought back Agag, the king. He could never own up and say, it's me. I'm the sinner. I'm the guilty one. But the thief and all of his failings and all of his mistakes was right in this one regard. He knew he had messed up and he confessed it. In your life, is it always someone else's fault? Do not commit spiritual suicide by drinking the poison of self-righteousness and having the inability to confess when you've messed up. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16, 18. Those that hate reproof or correction will die. Proverbs 15 and verse 10. The second lesson we learned from the thief is he knew and believed that his punishment on this occasion was deserved. Now, here's number three. He believed that Jesus was innocent. 
he and the other thief suffered for their deeds. But then he says about Jesus, this man has done, the old King James says he's done nothing amiss. He has done nothing wrong. He is not the first as Jesus is being crucified to pronounce innocence on Jesus. Notice how many people throughout the trial from Judas all the way throughout say Jesus is an innocent man. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But in Matthew 27 and verse 4, he went back in among the priests and he says, I betrayed innocent blood. He knew Jesus had done nothing wrong. Right here in our passage in Luke 23 and verse 4, Pilate says, I find no fault in him. And then in Luke 23 and verse 15, he takes him to Herod and Herod, though he wanted to see a sign or miracle performed. Herod says in verse 15 of Luke 23, this man has done nothing worthy of death. Even Pilate's wife says to Pilate in Matthew 27, 19, have nothing to do with this righteous man. I've suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. At the end of the crucifixion in Luke 23 and verse 47, the centurion says, truly, this was a righteous man and not just him. All of the other soldiers sing out in chorus, Matthew 27 and verse 49. And they say, this man truly was the son of God. It's painted throughout the Gospels. Jesus died an innocent man and the thief believed that he was. Now, this matters. It's not enough for you and me that Jesus died for our sins. The Bible tells us that, but the Bible says more. The Bible says Jesus died innocent and free from sin. When Jesus is in the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, when he comes through unscathed without sinning, he doesn't just win a victory for himself. He wins a victory for us. If the devil can get him to stumble at one point, he's disqualified. From being your sacrifice and mine, from being our high priest, our man in heaven, he never committed one sin. Hebrews 4.15 says he was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. Just like Isaiah said in Isaiah 53 and verse 9, he did no iniquity. There was no deceit found in his mouth. And the thief realized that this man has done nothing wrong. He doesn't deserve to be here. He's innocent. He's never committed a transgression, not on the day that he died, but throughout his whole life. He never committed one wrong accusation. He's the only man in the history of the world who could say what he said in John chapter eight and verse 46. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Nobody. They were frustrated with his actions. And in John 10 and verse 32, he says, I've done many good works. For which of them do you stone me? He knew he had done nothing wrong. The people at the foot of the cross denied the goodness of Jesus. Don't let him get away with it. He pronounces the innocence of Jesus for all to hear. This man has done nothing wrong. Well, what does that mean? It means something for us. If Jesus did nothing wrong, then here's the question we need to wrestle with. What is he doing on the cross? It's because we've done something wrong. You see, until we get this point, the gospel doesn't change us. When we approach the Lord's table in the mind of God, it's supposed to do something to us that a man, but more than a man, the God man died innocently. Though he had never done anything wrong. Thanks be unto God for his indescribable gift. Second Corinthians 915. What's so indescribable about it? It's that Jesus died for our sins, but he died innocently. Having never made one mistake in his whole life, he went about doing good. Acts 10 and verse 38. And it's supposed to change us. As we see innocent and divine blood shed for our sins, it's supposed to say something to us that we're guilty. We should have been on crosses. We should have been separated from God. But he was in our place. The thief realizes that Jesus is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens. Hebrews 7 and verse 26. And it does something to him. 
we may be tempted to compare ourselves to other people, but here's what we need to do. Put yourself next to Jesus. How good do you look spiritually next to the Son of God? If we compare ourselves among ourselves, we're not wise. But how good do we look next to the one who never did anything wrong? The thief says, he doesn't deserve to be here. He doesn't have to rescue us. He doesn't have to save us. He's an innocent man. Now, here's number four. The thief on the cross believed it was important to be remembered by Jesus. He's the first person to call Jesus by name in the entire crucifixion narrative. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's different from everybody else you read about as the crucifixion has taken place. He wants to be remembered by Jesus. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He wanted Jesus to keep him in mind. He didn't want to be forgotten. You know, throughout the Bible, it said that God remembers different people. Noah, Genesis 8 and verse 1, and all of the animals that went into the ark were remembered by God, and he brought them out onto dry land. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and then put in prison. And while in prison, in Genesis 40 and verse 14, he says to the chief cupbearer, in three days, you'll be lifted back up to your place of prominence. And when you are, remember me. And then the Bible says in Genesis 40 and verse 23, but he forgot him. I don't know what this man was thinking on this day. He was being crucified. So far as we know, he wasn't famous. He wasn't well known. Was his family there to watch him die? So far as we know, he was about to perish from the earth and be forever forgotten. And then he cries out, Lord, please don't forget me. Imagine dying and nobody shows up to your funeral. It's not like you would know. You wouldn't get up and say, where is everybody? But just imagine it being totally forgotten. Proverbs 11 and verse 7 says, when the wicked dies, his hope perishes. And so does any expectation of wealth. He could have been totally forgotten. But he says, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, don't forget about me. There are plenty of famous people in the world. They can't go into a restaurant, a mall or a store without being bombarded by people. Everybody knows them. Everywhere they go, they're harassed by people. They're well known. What a shame to be well known in this life and unknown in the next. Jesus says, on the day of judgment, many people will say, we've prophesied in your name, done many wonderful works. And he'll profess to them, Matthew 7, 23, I don't know you. Depart from me, you which practice lawlessness. If you acknowledge me before men, I'll acknowledge you before my father in heaven. But if you deny me, I will deny you, Matthew 10, 32 and 33. What a shame to be known by the world and forgotten by Jesus. The thief says, when you come into your kingdom, don't forget about me. He thought that maybe in the future, maybe somewhere down the road, maybe in eternity, Jesus would remember him. But Jesus doesn't want better. Jesus says today, not sometime in the distant today, you'll be with me in paradise. It's one of Luke's favorite words throughout the gospel of Luke. He's always saying things aren't going to happen in some distant time in the future, but it's going to happen now. Luke two and verse 11, the angel appeared to the shepherd and he said today is born to you in the city of David, a savior, which is Christ the Lord. It's Jesus's first time in the synagogue in Luke chapter four. He turns the scroll to Isaiah 61. He reads the passage and then he says today this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. They said, you know, you upset Herod what you said. He said, go and tell that fox I do miracles and cures today. And on the third day, I rise from the dead. Luke 13, 31 and 32. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus honored people like the thief throughout his life. It's always the people that confess wrong, that realize their need for a savior and Luke's gospel that are elevated and praised by Jesus. 
It's the woman at Simon's house in Luke 7, 44 and 48. And Jesus says, she's confessed her sin. She's forgiven. It's the prodigal son. Luke 15, 21 and 22. I've sinned before heaven and in your sight. I'm not worthy to be called your servant. It's the tax collector who beats his breast and won't even look to heaven and says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then it's the thief. And Jesus says, I will not forget you. I'll remember you. We learn from the thief on the cross that we desperately need to be remembered by Jesus. And the only way that's going to happen for any of us is if we obey the gospel and become faithful Christians. If we haven't, there's salvation in no one else but him. And if we have obeyed it to live faithfully, to live out our profession of faith and live as we should so that we're not forgotten in eternity so that we don't find ourselves beaten on heaven's door only to have him say, I don't know who you are. We want to be remembered by Jesus. And the thief did, too. He knew it was important to be remembered by him if he was forgotten by everybody else in the world. And here's the fifth and final thing. The thief on the cross believed. He believed that Jesus was a king and that he had a kingdom. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Maybe he heard John preach it in the wilderness in Matthew 3 and verse 2 when John said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Maybe he was around as Jesus echoed the same words as he began to heal people. Matthew 4, 17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is upon you. Repent and believe the gospel. Mark 1, 15. Maybe he ran into one of the twelve when they went out on the limited commission and they began to heal and cast out demons and to say to people, repent for the kingdom of God is here. Matthew 10, 6 and 7, whatever it is, he believed that Jesus was a king and that Jesus had a kingdom. It's the most ironic thing because as Jesus is dying, he looks like anything but royalty. They mocked him in Mark 15. You remember they put the robe on him and the crown of thorns. They struck him and spit on him and said, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. He's just as stripped and beaten and abandoned as Jesus. And he looks over at him and he says, you're not like us. You have something we don't have. And I want some of it. When you come into your kingdom, remember me. This point is probably the point where Jesus is most disrespected in the current times. Jesus is a Lord. Jesus is a master. Jesus is a judge. But Jesus also is a king and he has a kingdom. The manifestation of God's kingdom on earth is the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. And everybody who is baptized into Christ for the remission of sins comes into that family. They become a part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's why he was born and came into the world. But many people mock it. Just like Jesus was mocked in his earthly life and people looked at him and said, you can't be a king. We know your parents. We know where you come from. The same thing happens today. We go out and we talk to friends and neighbors and we say, you know, you really you need to obey the gospel. You need to become a Christian. And they come amongst people in the kingdom of God and they're not overwhelmed. They're underwhelmed. They say, is this it? Is this what you mean by God's kingdom? Surely this isn't it. And we say to them, not this building, but the people of God in every place. It may not look impressive to you, but it looks impressive to God. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and hid in the field, and it grew, and it became greater than all the plants. It became a tree, and now the birds launch and rest in its branches. Matthew 13, 2. The kingdom would have a small beginning, but it would eventually cover the waters, cover the world like the waters cover the sea. This man said, Jesus, you're a king, and when you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? We all have a choice. Either we crown ourselves or we crown Jesus. And this man said, Jesus, you're in charge and I'm not. Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight that I won't be delivered to you. But now is my kingdom not from here. Pilate said, are you a king then? Jesus said, for this reason was I born 
And for this reason came I into the world. Everyone who is of the truth, hears my voice. Truth was standing right in front of Pilate and he, he missed it. But the thief didn't. You know, Jesus is a king and his kingdom is the church which belongs to him. And he invites every one of us to become a part of it. The thief on the cross believed this about Jesus, that he wasn't just a man, that he wasn't just a prophet, but that he was ultimately the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament and who was reigning as king. And the Bible says he will reign until he puts all enemies under his feet and then he'll deliver up his kingdom to God. And we need to believe that same thing. The thief on the cross is studied and loved by Bible students everywhere. Some people abuse what's said about him here. But if we really read the account and take him in his own words, he won't let us do it. The saddest part about the thief on the cross in Luke 23, 39 through 43, is that we have to refer to him the way that we do. The thief on the cross. Why don't we say the thieves on the cross? You know, there was another man there. He heard the same words. He he saw the same things and he didn't believe. He could have repented. He could have changed. So far as we know, he was as close to Jesus as he ever would have been. And he died in unfaithfulness. And may that not be said of us. As we see the way Jesus lived, as we see the way he interacted with people, may we learn the same lesson that the penitent thief did and may our lives be changed. Don't use him as a get out of duty card because everything on his lips says Jesus is worthy to be obeyed. He would say to people today that say based on his repentance and his being received into God's kingdom, they don't have to do anything. He would say to them today, don't you fear God? Don't you know what you deserve? He's a king. He has a kingdom. Don't you want to be remembered by him? He would say, don't practice stubborn refusal, but instead be a servant and subject in his kingdom. Do you fear God? Do you know what you really deserve as punishment for your sins? Do you want to be remembered by Jesus? If you do, turn to him just like the thief did, believing that he is a king with the kingdom, that he is the Christ, repenting of your sins and confessing him before men and allowing your body to be immersed in water. And he'll add you to his kingdom. And you won't just watch him reign in eternity, but the Bible says you'll reign with him. If you've sinned and fallen short of God's glory and you desire the prayers of the church, if we can encourage you or help you in any way. The penitence of the thief is an example that, you know what, it's never too late until it's too late. And don't waste time. Be willing to confess when we've wronged. Be willing to admit we're not perfect. And we need the mercy and grace of God. If we can, is for you. Come now as together we stand and as we sing.